today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Cabinet shuffle in the federal government has uh, has occurred. The Prime Minister has made significant changes, especially when it comes to Hamilton. To talk more about all of this, Michael Tobe is with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, Washington Times contributor, and he is with us now. Michael, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. My pleasure, Scott. So Hamilton being re- uh, being represented now by Philomena Tassi, what does this mean for a city when you're represented in the government like this? Yeah, I mean, although Philomena Tassi probably is not a household name outside of your city, um, she's certainly been around for a while, and I think whenever you get someone from your city representing you in the federal cabinet, it gives you a bigger place at the table, which is what you absolutely want. And naturally, although her portfolio deals with the ministry, she's a minister of, se- of seniors, and obviously not the minister of Hamilton-related events, she's obviously going to push issues that are important to Hamilton, including seniors' homes and seniors' issues, which include everything from, say, medication all the way to treatment and the number of uh, beds that are available, say, in seniors' homes. These are the sorts of things she'll be able to basically discuss with more authority. It's a lot better to be actually at the cabinet table where you can present these issues than sitting in the back benches and really have no voice at all. Uh, do, you, do you see changes in Hamilton politics coming? I mean, we're getting representation this way. Obviously, uh, David Christofferson leaving in the NDP, Matthew Green, local councillor, uh, announcing he's running for that. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it's been known as an NDP town for a long time. Do you think that's changing? Well, you see, that's the way I understand it, too, and I apologize for my ignorance, even though obviously I know about Hamilton and its politics. I don't live in the city. Um, yeah, I mean, the one big thing is that Hamilton has switched a lot to the NDP in recent federal and provincial elections. And for that reason, especially when you have a federal liberal government and as of now a provincial PC government, uh, quite frankly, Hamilton doesn't have really that big a say anymore. You need to have some representation, not only just as elected officials, but also in the cabinet to be able to have a little bit more authority. So I think for Hamilton, someone like Ms. Tassie coming in is obviously very helpful uh, to your city's cause and to her cause in general to ensure that issues of importance, especially local ones, are discussed. But yeah, I mean, look, the NDP, I'm sorry, that Hamilton has to sort of think along the same level as, say, Toronto does, where I live, that if you keep electing people who are not forming a part of a government, your say or your ultimate say on a day-to-day basis is going to be far more limited. So you have to sort of think about and choose things wisely. And if you choose parties that, quite frankly, don't have influence or don't run a government, well, you know where you're going to be at the end of the day. So let's talk about the rest of this uh, cabinet shuffle. Reasoning for this, what's in this for Canadians? What does it mean to Canadians? You know what? It's more sport for people like you and I. Let's be perfectly frank about it. The discussion is really, you know, political pundits, commentators, uh, political experts, political junkies, radio hosts, I'll include you as well, and TV hosts, etc. For us, this is sport. This is something to look at, to sort of take a look on the, the inside and sort of try to figure out, at least in this case, what the Trudeau liberals are up to, why they've made so many changes, at least at mid-level positions, if nothing else, and what their plans might be going forward for the next few months until the federal election is called next year. I think the thing that is interesting about this cabinet shuffle, and I'm sure you've noticed it too, it was much larger than was originally predicted. People knew that, you know, there was going to be some shuffling about, there were going to be a few people put in different positions, maybe some kicked out, 
But in the end, ultimately, actually nobody was turfed out, which was actually kind of surprising. Yet uh, several new ministers, I believe six in total, or five, sorry, five in total, were brought in, whereas several ministers were shuffled into different positions, some of them more important, and some of them, like, say, Melanie Jolie, the, you know, put into a far lesser position. I think what you're having here is basically, as, as Justin Trudeau said after the shuffle had finished, was basically the faces that he wants to put forward for uh, what he believes will be a very comprehensive and obviously a very time-worthy, and at least in his mind, agenda for the fall. Naturally, people who support the opposition parties, like I do, as I support the conservatives, are going to look at this as just sort of shuffling the faces that, yeah, aren't well known to most Canadians, but it's just going to be more of the same. It doesn't matter what the Trudeau's liberals uh, discuss, the policies that they put in place. They can be as ambitious as they want. The end result is going to be the same. But I think for people who support the Liberal Party, they see this as a way to sort of clean up the show a little bit, put some fresh new faces up in the, you know, up in the front in the cabinet ranks, and sort of see if different voices and different people with different political styles employ a certain touch with the average voter or the common voter and give the Liberal Party a bit of a necessary jump that they need because if you actually believe opinion polls, and sometimes you have to take them with a grain of salt, obviously, the Liberals seem to be declining in terms of popularity, whereas specifically with the Tories, they are inclining. The marg- it's now basically margin of error in some polls, which is about two to three percentage points, which means that heading into the fall session and then thrusting ourselves ahead to the federal election for next year, 2019, it means that things are going to be very, very tight unless some of these new cabinet ministers and these, some of these new faces that Canadians have to get used to actually perform not only just well, but beyond capacity or beyond expectations. If they do, that's to their advantage, and that's why the shuffle, even though it's more sport for you and I, is actually kind of important for the Liberals moving forward to ensure that their agenda it looks to be not only progressive, but actually moving forward and benefiting Canada. How significant are these changes if they're all sort of mid-level and there's no real top-level changes? Which I guess is a good sign, is it? Well, I mean, I, I guess the federal Liberals are saying it's a good sign. I mean, obviously, if uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and his senior advisors, Gerald Butts, Katie Telford, and others, if they were frustrated with some of the top-ranked officials or some of the top-ranked cabinet ministers, uh, they would have moved them out or they would have shuffled them you know, even if it had just been a lateral shuffle, like one of importance to another of importance, that would have shown that the Trudeau Liberals recognize that there are some weaknesses, at least in the higher-ranking cabinet posts, and they need to shuffle them around and fix them up. In this case, yeah, you're right. I mean, as I pointed out initially, these are mostly mid-level cabinet ministers who have either been shuffled about or added in. These are not people who are necessarily going to be the power players. You know, for example, Bill Morneau is still the finance minister. Are you surprised at that? No, I actually didn't think he was going to do that. I think that, quite frankly, Justin Trudeau and his political mandarins, or senior advisors, if you wish, they are probably very content with the people that they put in place, and they're probably happy overall with their performances. Like, for example, and you may have speculated on this during the week or even before, Catherine McKenna, the environment minister, was somebody that some people were thinking, well, if Justin Trudeau is going to sort of throw a wild card or throw a monkey wrench into the whole system, maybe he'll pull someone like her 
out of the puzzle because, you know, she's made a lot of controversial comments and often just seems to be kind of floating by her own little wings, so to speak, whenever it comes to things that she discusses. A lot of the things she talks about and tweets about it specifically, I don't think benefit the federal liberal government at all. You know, she might have been sort of ripe for the picking to sort of shuffle elsewhere, but he left her alone. As I said, Bill Morneau, the finance minister, who had his own issues with personal finances last year, even though he's been cleared of them, uh, was kept in place. Most of the uh, powerful ministers were left alone, which means that Trudeau and his senior people have faith in them, have trust in them, and basically want to keep moving forward into a federal election with them up front and center. The fact that the mid-level ones were changed, those are, if you sort of look at the history of cabinet shuffles, no matter which political party is in power, that's actually very common. You're basically just cleaning up your benches a little bit, adding some people who you either like or you feel have performed well as backbench MPs or at a junior minister level, and you want to sort of promote them to sort of help them along and maybe get their areas, in other words, their ridings, their regions, their cities, a little bit more exposure, shall we say, over the next few months. So, yeah, I think the fact that he didn't move any high-level ministers means that, quite frankly, they're quite content with what they see. Uh, the addition of Bill Blair, former Toronto police chief, uh, now becomes the point person on a uh, minister for uh, border security and organized crime reduction. Your thoughts? Yeah, crime reduction. Shouldn't you want crime elimination? Hmm. Yeah. What a terrible job title. But anyway. It's interesting how they have changed the job titles over the years. It it's almost becomes a positioning statement more than a job title. Well, it's true, because if you look at the history of Canadian politics, a lot of the traditional positions were always left alone. It was always that if anybody was added to cabinet, you were typically a minister without portfolio or something like that. Usually the job title stayed the same. But you're right. I mean, I'd say probably... I don't know how far back you would go. Mulroney changed it a little bit, but I think Chrétien also certainly did too. Certainly the past few decades, a lot of the cabinet positions have sort of shuffled about and changed titles and added different duties, subtracted others, etc. Um, but I think in the grand scheme of things, if you look at Bill Blair, it's interesting that he was added this new portfolio while being kept on the cannabis file or the marijuana file, which means that he'll be looking at quote-unquote crime reduction in one sense and legalizing marijuana in the other. Two very, you know, they do have a bit of a relation because obviously there are people with criminal records, you know, for having possessed marijuana in the past. So there's an interesting tie-in there. But I think that basically they're going to look at it as a former police chief getting involved in a cabinet ministry that deals specifically with crime or reducing crime and I think they'll sort of look at that as window dressing as we've now got our tough police officer dealing with that area. Yeah. So any problems that we've had with, say, immigration, asylum seekers, and others can now be dealt with in a proper fashion because, you know, we have a man who formerly held a badge running that position. I think that's most of the reasoning why they actually did it. And also as well, Bill Blair is obviously well-liked by the prime minister and his senior advisors. So it was kind of obvious that he would get a promotion at some point in time. But is it going to make a great deal of difference? No, I doubt it. Uh, the Prime Minister's biggest challenge heading into the next election? Well, uh, besides the obvious, which is getting re-elected now that the poll numbers are starting to tighten up, I think he, basically what he needs to do is he needs to have a very forceful agenda. If you're going to be fair about it, that's the, really his key to success. He cannot rest on his laurels and assume that his personal popularity is going to float him along for the next few months 
because I think as things have recently been seen and some of the issues and controversies that he's faced, Justin Trudeau is just not as popular as he was a few years ago. Whatever this political honeymoon, which you and I and I've talked about with others, have discussed over the time, that honeymoon is officially done. So he now needs to work on his record. Plus, there's going to be ambitious things that they're going to be working on. I mean, I just discussed one of them, which is the legalization of marijuana which they're going to have to work directly with, with different police chiefs, associations, and just police organizations in general, who are not terribly keen on this coming in, even though they know that there's the, what is it, the October 17th deadline is fast approaching. And for that reason, they have to get their act together and get something in place to ensure that the whole puzzle, shall we say, runs smoothly. So I think things like that, plus dealing with any possible economic issues, I think certainly immigration and asylum seekers that I mentioned earlier, that's going to be a big issue. The carbon tax is going to be a mighty issue as well now that the Ontario government and the new PC Premier Doug Ford have said we want nothing to do with it, which meets the position of other provinces like Saskatchewan and Manitoba and will likely also meet the position next year of Alberta if everything sort of stands the way it is and Jason Kenney and the United Conservative Party are able to knock off Rachel Notley and the Alberta NDP. So there are a lot of challenging issues that the Prime Minister is going to have to deal with. So this cabinet shuffle, even if it's not with major names involved, still is important because there are going to be people that he shuffled into cabinet who are going to have to deal with new duties and new responsibilities and issues that some of them, having been backbenchers either for a few years or in the case of Mary Ng, only about a year and a bit, are going to be really have to sort of deal with immediately and are going to be thrust forward into a job that they really have not dealt with and a job description that has not really been sort of part and parcel with their day-to-day activities in Ottawa. All right, Michael, I cannot let you go with asking, without asking you what's been going on south of the border. We've only got about a minute or so left. Your sure. thoughts on the change from wood to wouldn't and all of this stuff? whole thing is so insane. It really is. Isn't it bizarre, I, Michael? Yeah, yeah, it's completely bizarre. I don't know. I mean, obviously, there's two sides to every coin. We don't have to go through them. Either, the, you know, either President Trump did botch it up, and he, you know, it's rare for him to make an apology. It's rare for him to make some sort of a statement. So, What does that say that he does or that he has? Well, it's one of two things. Either he realizes that he made a mistake and he wants to correct the record immediately, or he realizes that the blowback has been so hard from you know, nominal and powerful supporters, including people like Newt Gingrich, that he realized that if he didn't change his tune or find a way out of this mess, it was going to be terrible for him in his re-election bid for 2020 and for the Republicans in the midterm elections coming up in a few months' time. So whether you believe the president or think he's a liar, he had no choice but to change this because the way it stood during that press conference with uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin would have been disastrous, not just upon returning home, but for the next few months and years to come. Michael Tobin has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a great day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
A research done by CAMH, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, that was published this week determined that suicide notes carry patterns and common themes that they can help with prevention. To talk about all of this, Dr. Javeria Zahir is with us, Clinical Scientist, Institute for Mental Health and Policy and Education Administrator, Center for Addiction and Mental Health, and is with us now. Javari, thank you so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. Thank you for having me on. What is the objective of this study? What were you trying to find? So in suicide research in general, we often focus on numerical data, looking at rates or risk factors, demographics. But what we wanted to do was to harness the power of people's own experiences using qualitative research methods um, to better understand what people are going through in the moments prior to their death by suicide. The hope is that we can use this information to understand the pattern of thinking that can contribute to suicide, and then we can target that to identify people at risk, people who are suffering, and to help instill hope and aid in recovery in the future. You know, once you say this, it seems obvious. Why did it take us this long to get here? So I think it's, it's a really good question. I think, you know, in mental health and in healthcare in general, we want to focus on providing the best evidence-based care for our, for our patients. And that means, you know, doing randomized control trials or looking at uh, trends within a population. And I think sometimes because of that, we may not focus on the actual experiences of people who are suffering or their families or clinicians themselves. I think harnessing uh, those um, those experiences can be really, really valuable. And I think as we move forward in mental health care and health care, um, there's a real push to better understand people's experiences because they're often the experts in their own care. Um, does this go back to, you know, I can think of talking to experts about treating addiction and they always said, well, you got to get the addiction under control first. And then others have said, no, there's mental health behind that. So you have to get that under control first before you can treat the addiction. Is this the same sort of concept, same sort of approach? Yeah, I think, I think it's a really good point. I think, you know, when people are, people are complicated, they aren't just their biological illness. They have hopes and dreams. They have um, strengths and challenges. They may have comorbid addictions issues. They may have anxiety or depression. So I think understanding people as a whole is always really important and working with them to empower them to develop a treatment plan, um, I think, is the way to go moving forward. Uh, do many leave a note? Uh, what percentage of those who take their lives do so in our sample, we looked at about 1,560 suicides that happened in Toronto um, between 2003 and 2009. Of that group of people, about one-third did leave a note, and about 300 of the notes were available in the, in the files for us to have a look at. Uh, one-third. Are you, would we be surprised by that number? Because often we hear of, of people in this situation leaving a note. Are you surprised it's one-third, it's not more? Um, I think it's. I think when we think about suicide in popular culture, often we have this image of people leaving a note. Um, and I think as as researchers and for all and for people in the media as well, we work really hard not to glamorize or romanticize suicide notes. So often we try not to report on those um, when people famous, for example, die by suicide. I think suicide is complicated, and often it can be an impulsive act for some people. It can be something that isn't planned. Um, so I think because it's so variable, it's tough to say that. More, more or less people would leave a note. Um, you, you said something that I found, found astonishing, that, that, that a lot of the times this isn't planned? Yeah, so I think, um, so that's, I think it's really important in suicide prevention because I think we often picture people who are very, very depressed and feeling very hopeless, and certainly those are people that we need to advocate for and reach out to. But the important thing to note is that 90% of people who die by suicide have a mental illness. 
But the vast majority of people who have mental illness do not die by suicide, even if they have suicidal thoughts. Mm -hmm. And so for people, there can be people who struggle with suicidal thoughts day in and day out. And in a moment, they can maybe feel a little bit less safe if there's something bad that happens or if they're feeling hopeless. And so one important intervention for people is the thought of safety planning. So for people who may not be um, feeling actively having suicidal thoughts to come up with a plan of people they can talk to or things that they can do if those thoughts come back. And that can help build resilience uh, and help with recovery. So what is, when those one-third do write a note, what's the purpose of the note? So I think often, and again, we need to be careful not to, to glamorize mm-hmm. or to romanticize the notes, but they're, you know, they're a form of communication, um, often communication to loved ones. Um, and I think what's really important is that when people are struggling with depression or serious mental illness, they have, and as part of the illness, they have a negative view of themselves and of their future and of their relationships with people. So it can be really heartbreaking because they think, you know, maybe I'm not worth it or nobody loves me when we know that that can be the depression affecting their way of thinking. So is it an explanation for their actions? Is it an apology? Is it asking for help? I think it can. I think it depends on the person. In our study, uh, we wanted to focus specifically on how they describe having mental health concerns, how they describe their symptoms in particular, um, and as well as how they describe their, their, their sort of experiences and views of mental health treatment. We thought by focusing on that piece in particular, then that could be um, the most useful way to help prevent suicide. So often the person's mental health would come up in these notes. They would discuss that. They would talk yeah. about it. Absolutely. So in our sample of 290, we specifically selected 36 notes that focused on these ideas in particular um, and then analyzed them very carefully. So what are the common denominators in these notes? So one of the, the first thing that we, that we noticed through the notes is that people often talk about feelings of control and powerlessness. Um, many people who die by suicide as a function of feeling very depressed can feel that they have no control over their lives or their mental health issue um, and they have no control over the way in which their illness can impact their quality of life. We know that that's part of depression and that can be a treatment for a target for treatment. So as a, I'm a psychiatrist or for a family doctor or for a loved one to sort of help the person see how things could be otherwise, provide good treatment um, or to focus on empowering them. The second thing that we found is the battle between someone's real self and mental illness. So, you know, when we talk about cancer, often we talk about defeating cancer or conquering cancer. And depression or anxiety or addiction is just as biological as cancer is, but sometimes it can be really tough because how do you fight yourself? Depression makes you feel badly about yourself. It can make you not be able to concentrate or enjoy life. And so what are you fighting? You know, who, who is a depression and who is you? So what we really need to stress to our patients and our loved ones who are suffering is that you aren't your illness. Um, you can get really exhausted and tired by trying to fight this battle, but you aren't your illness, and there is there can be hope with the proper treatment. And then the last thing we found sort of relatedly is that experiences of mental health care um, for people who are suffering can sometimes lead to feelings of hopelessness and self-blame. You know, the belief that there's nothing that can happen for me to get better, or maybe there's something wrong with me in particular for not responding to treatment. Um, as a psychiatrist, and I'm an emergency department psychiatrist, so I often see people on the worst days of their lives. Mm. I know that with the proper support and a really good treatment plan and um, support from society and friends and psychotherapy and medication, people do get better. And these, this is a very treatable illness, but in that dark moment, it can be really tough to see that. 
Uh, obviously, we're all trying to understand all of this and communicate more uh, about it, and, and, and it appears we are at least talking more about it. But I still hear many people say that this is a selfish act, that this, why aren't these people thinking of others, the kids, the, the relations, the whatever. Uh, but you keep bringing up powerless and helplessness, which are two words that seem to be coming out more new, more new words in, or terms in research and such. Uh, talk a little bit about that, that, that these people uh, who, who are suffering this way, they're not thinking about those they leave behind. They're not, they're not thinking selfishly, are they? Um, I absolutely. I think when we think about suicide, rather than framing it as someone's individual, you know, bad decision, we need to think about it really as a major Canadian and international public health issue. And this is a, a consequence of, of disease and, and a disorder. And so, you know, to understand that when people are suffering so tremendously, that life can feel um, like it's not worth living, or that people can feel powerless. But we need to stress as a society that the vast majority of people who suffer from these illnesses do get better and do recover. Um, and there are ways that we can help people feel resilient and um, build towards the future. So if we can say, you know, not that if you're having suicidal thoughts, you're selfish, but if you're having suicidal thoughts, you're suffering and you deserve the very, very best care and the very, very best support. So often we've just said, buck up. Have we gotten beyond that yet? You know, I think it's a it's a good question, and I think especially you know in Canada, um, men are much more likely to die by suicide than women, and some people think that could be potentially those sorts of messages like "buck up" or "be a man" or "get over it." Um, but I think it's um, I think we're moving um, as a society to understanding that depression is um, really really serious and just as serious as any medical issue. That mental health is health, and that. If it were so easy to buck up, people would buck up. That You wouldn't tell mm. someone who had cancer to buck up or who had a heart attack to buck up. So um, I'm hoping that we can start to see mental health um, and mental illness through that same lens. Do, in these notes, did you see any reasoning for the action? Was there any common denominators in why they did this? So I think it's, um, you know, there people in their notes have, have different perceptions of, of kind of what leads them to where they're at. Um, we wanted to focus um, less on the reasons because, in our view, if over 90% of the people who die by suicide have mental illness that's suboptimally treated, um, that mental illness can color the way they see the world. And so if we can focus more on the mental health piece, um, then we can, then it might change the way that people see the world. Are we surprised that over 90% of those that take their uh, lives have mental illness? I mean, should we be surprised with that? Yeah, and I think it depends on who you ask. Um, for me, as a as a psychiatrist in an emergency department, you know, you see people suffering um, all the time. And I think too, there's there's I think depression, anxiety um, are really underdiagnosed um, in our society. So it makes sense to me from what I see that the vast majority of people are suffering because to uh, you know to end one's life is is tragic, and it it is not something that people would come to lightly in the absence of um, tremendous pain. You talk to any doctor, they'll tell you that anxiety, depression on the rise in their, uh, in their practices, young and old, all demographics. Why is this such a big issue now? Is it bigger now or are we just more aware? Um, I think you're, I think both. I think um, 
and through destigmatization and through public awareness, um, we do see more people seeking care, which is excellent. In our emergency department at CAMH, for example, after things like Bell Let's Talk um, and other campaigns, our volumes have tripled um, in the last 10 years that I've been working there. So I think that's a really good sign. Uh, I think, too, you know, life is, uh, you know, life is always tough. And for our young people, there's issues with bullying or there's issues with um, uh, the opiate ep- epidemic. Um, there's, as society, um, you know, we need a strong social net. So if people are suffering from things like poverty or racism or inequality, all of these things can funnel into feelings of trauma, distress, and worsen depression and anxiety. Uh, you say in this piece uh, that you're quoted in, uh, you are not your illness. What does that mean? So I think when we, when we are very, very depressed, we can think very poorly of ourselves. We can feel like we can't do anything and the future is really bleak. But it's important to note that this is an illness and you aren't your illness. You are a person who has strengths, who deserves to recover, who has people that love them. And the illness is something that's a part of you, but something that um, you can overcome or something that can, you know, the other good things in your life can can make up for, uh, and you deserve the very best treatment. What would you say to someone who may be listening now who, something's just not right, doesn't feel right, something's, uh, what do I do? So I, I, I love that question because I think if we can help one person who's suffering, then um, everything that we do is worth it. So the first thing I would say is if you ever, if someone ever doesn't feel safe, if you ever have thoughts of hurting yourself and you don't think you can keep yourself safe, to go to your nearest emergency department um, and to, to get assessed right away because this is a medical emergency. For people who are having you know fleeting thoughts of suicide or who are having depressive and anxiety symptoms, to know that this isn't normal, that you don't have to live like this, that you don't deserve to live like this, Often the first step can be going to your family doctor, uh, or if you don't have a family doctor, to go to a walk-in and say, you know, I'm really not sleeping, I can't concentrate, I'm feeling really panicky, and then they can do a good assessment and help you. And our family physicians actually manage the majority of mental health um, issues in our system. There are also um, Canadian, the Canadian Mental Health Association, there's a branch in Hamilton, they're a great place to reach out to uh, for support or advocacy. If you're a student, to go to student health. Um, if you're a student, to go to your guidance counselor. If you're a religious person, to check in with your church or other community elders. Um, there, You deserve help, and the more people you talk to, the better. And even if it's just a small thing like turning to your partner um, or your parent or your child and saying, you know, I don't feel right, um, can we talk? I think that's an amazing first step. Are you ever cured of this type of illness, or is it just managed? Um, you can. It depends on on the mental illness, but absolutely, you can. We call it in in psychiatry remission, and remission means an absence of symptoms and disabilities. So, in depression, the remission rates are quite high, um, and treatment is is really effective. Uh, there are there are a smaller percentage of people that may have recurrent episodes of depression, and then you may have to restart treatment again. But there's there's absolutely a lot of people who can who kind of get through it and. You know, they can learn things in their treatment, like how to take care of themselves, maybe to exercise, um, other self-care techniques, meditation, and that can prevent another episode from happening in the future. It's not a short process, is it? It's a long process. It's almost like dieting. It's, It's like a lifestyle change, isn't it? That's exactly right. And I think I'm thinking of another study that we're publishing this summer that looks at patterns of recovery in people who had suicidal behavior. And what those people told us is that, you know, there's one part of recovery that's just feeling safe again. 
And then there's a second part of recovery that's being able to sleep and eat and not to feel guilty and enjoying life again. That's kind of a clinical recovery. But then there's the recovery of reconnecting with your friends and family, um, of doing things like activities or work that is meaningful to you, um, of uh, contributing to society in whatever way that looks like. Uh, I think of, of feeling connected spiritually. So I think that recovery is um, multidimensional. And, you know, the first thing we want to focus on is your, is your safety. And then it's your, you know, physical and medical well-being. And beyond that, there's a whole world out there. How do you fall into this? I mean, you talked about things being important, whether it's relationships or, um, or uh, exercising, something as simple as that. How, how do we, not that that's simple by any means, mm-hmm. how do we fall into this? How do we get deeper and deeper into it? So I think that um, it's, you know, if you think about any um, medical illness, for example, diabetes, there are some people who have a genetic predisposition to diabetes. Uh, There's some people that um, may have diabetes as a function of taking a medication or as a function of um, weight gain. And I think mental health is similar. There's certainly a a huge biological component. So if you have one of the things I always ask in the emergency department is, do you have a family history of depression or anxiety? Or do you have a family history of people having suicidal thoughts? Because that's one of the biggest risk factors, if not the biggest risk factor for developing mental health systems uh, symptoms any history of trauma, so people who have had trauma in their lives, recurrent trauma or trauma once, um, they are at really high risk of having mental health issues and deserve to get good support. Um, You know, people sometimes ask me, you know, oh, well, if someone has a breakup and they're feeling really depressed, does it count as depression? And it absolutely can. You know, we don't want to pathologize sadness. We don't want to say you're not allowed to be sad. But if you can't get out of bed and you're having dark thoughts and you can't eat and you can't sleep, well, then that's, that's an illness, no matter what caused it. Um, and then other things just to be aware of, are there times in people's lives that can be particularly challenging? So losing a job for women um, after pregnancy, having a young child at home can be um, an at-risk time. So kind of looking at uh, any, t- any period of time where you're having stress, it can be a risk factor for sure. How can there be such a stigma around this if it seems to affect so many people in so many different ways? Yeah, and if it's so common, why the stigma? Yeah, and I think too, it it goes back to that piece of, you know, first is now I think as a society we're finally understanding that depression, uh, mental health issues are uh, are biologically driven illness, and I think that piece can be freeing a stigma. I think the other piece that will help is to know that a lot of people are going through it. I think culturally in the past people just didn't talk about it, or you might say, or that person. Um, is weird or that person is is this or that. But I think now as we talk about it and we better understand each other, fewer people are suffering in silence. And I think that's always a good thing. I think if we are open about it, we would be surprised to know how many people we've loved have suffered from depression and anxiety or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or substance use. Hmm. Dr. Javeria Zahir has been with us, Clinical Scientist, Institute for Mental Health uh, Policy and Education Administrator, Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Doctor, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Do you know what? What is mead? Other than perhaps those that are into Harry Potter, are you aware of it? It's a beverage, and it appears to be going through a renaissance, certainly in this province. But what is it? 
And uh, how did we get to where we are? To talk more about all of this, William Roman is with us, General Manager and Bee Master, Rosewood Estate Winery, and with us now. William, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. How are you today? I'm doing very well. You? I'm doing great and on a hot, nice day here. Are you having some mead? Uh, right now I'm not. It's still the middle of the working day, but uh, later tonight I definitely will. So what is it? So mead, in a nutshell, is honey wine. And so we get asked this question a lot. What is mead or what is honey wine and why is it the same word or is, does it mean the same thing? Uh, so mead, in essence, is honey wine, so wine made of honey. So in a more literal translation, fermented honey. So what we're doing and playing with here is taking a state honey that we, we use from our own beehive. So I'm a beekeeper. I've been a beekeeper my entire life now, uh, third generation of my family. So we take this honey that we collect on the Niagara Escarpment and we ferment it into an uh, alcoholic beverage. And it can range in style and sweetness and finishing. Some are finished in bourbon barrels. Some is done in cognac barrels. Some is uh, no barrel or oak treatment of any kind. Some is fermented with fruit. Uh, some with spices. Some is sparkling. Uh, there's a whole whole host of things you can do with it. It's really a magical world, to be honest. Uh, is is mead a byproduct of the honey process or, or beekeeping in general? No. Or, or is it for, or people are just doing this for this purpose? Uh, so it's 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 actually an add-on product, so it's for that purpose. I look at it as a value-added product for beekeepers uh, and why I was one of the founding beekeeping um, operations to help form the Ontario Mead Makers Association. We don't have a common voice for the meaderies of Ontario, so myself and uh, Monroe Meadery out in Essex County, so towards London, we, uh, his name is John there, John and I found together this Ontario Mead Makers Association so that we could band together a collective um, goal of better promoting and getting out quality meads to people of Ontario because it's such an underutilized product that so few people actually really know about. Uh, it is definitely a growing segment, though. Uh, we're getting a lot more attention and attraction from the general consumer, and uh, now they're starting to realize, hey, meat is honey one, and it can be delicious, too, and it's not just tasting of honey and not just sweet. Hmm. Uh, so it's a really interesting thing. So you're third-generation beekeeper, correct? That's correct. So are you the first generation to venture down this road? What did your family do prior to this? So uh, it's actually a really interesting story. My grandfather wanted to actually do exactly what I'm doing today, um, but at that time the government was not actually issuing new licenses. So he, apl- he started to apply for a honey wine license. So under Ontario's um, eyes, the government's eyes, there's no mead license. It's a honey wine license by strict definition. So, so what's the difference between a honey, wine li- a honey wine license and a regular wine license? Uh, it's, one is the fact that legally we have to have 100 beehives under our name that's right. registered to the company for us to be uh, beekeepers um, to keep our honey wine license active and, and valid so we can actually uh, keep making honey wine. Versus a grape wine license or a fruit wine license, there's other parameters that you have to have. So a certain amount of uh, acres under orchard of the specific fruit or under vine or, or grapevine like a will for uh, a winery itself. So uh, do uh, people who make mead, uh, are they the same as people that make wine? Or would it be considered the same sort of business? And are wineries now interested in mead? Uh, so it's a kind of a um, yes and no question. So we're in fact, Rosewood in fact is the uh, first and still only remaining winery and meadery in all of Ontario. Uh, and we, we're not sure right now about all of Canada, but we're the first and, and still the only ones in Ontario that do both and hold all the licenses to do our grape wine under VQA as well as our honey wines under the honey wine license. Um, so we're the only ones that do this. And there's definitely, like I said, more interest from other winemakers, but it's the winery owners that don't know or, or don't know much about honey wine or don't know much about beekeeping that are not as willing to take the risk to 
get involved in this and to undergo a whole new set of parameters and licensing, uh, we believe, to get involved in the business. And that's why we haven't seen many others. I'm sure and, I, and I'm actually hoping that more will join um, because we need more people in the game to make mead, to promote what is mead slash honey wine for the general consumer, because uh, it can be so beautiful and expressive of flavor and terroir, just like wine is. Uh, just like with grapes that are harvested every single season or vintage that are different, even if they're from the same block or same type of grape, honey varies every single time you collect it. And that makes different set of flavors and parameters that you get to mm. play with and show varietal or seasonal expressions in the finished product. So you are a winery. You sell wine as well as mead. Is that correct? correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, is that are those those seem two odd industries to bring together? But I guess that was the purpose with with you creating mead. Uh, yeah, actually. So like I was saying before, my grandfather wanted to make honey wine at a commercial level in Ontario starting in 1967, and he applied for it uh, up until 1974, or 1973, sorry, when at that point he gave up his dream because the government kept saying, sorry, you, you, we're not going to give you a license. But this was combined with the fact that he wasn't backed by a large bank or a large right. industry, and he had very, very small uh, funds available to him at that point, but also because the LCB and the government were not issuing new licenses between 1929 and 1974. So there's not a single new winery, mm. alcohol, or beer license that was issued in that time period. So his dream was crushed, and that's where my father, who was already around at that point, saw that his dream of making honey wine at a commercial level was destroyed, and he said one day he will, he will make that happen if he could. Fast forward 20 years, my mother and father now went on, the, on a honeymoon to Niagara Lake. They fell in love with the area. Inniskillen, the first winery to get a new, li- new issue of a license in Ontario, had opened up, and they went and toured there. They loved it. They liked the region. They loved the local produce and people, and they said, hey, you know what? If uh, we can build a winery one day, we will. And they promised that to each other. And and then 20 years after that, we're now sitting here in this winery. How did your grandfather know of mead? Uh, it's just, I think most beekeepers, uh, if you speak to any beekeeper right. uh, going forward, most beekeepers attempt to make their own honey wine uh, or mead at home just because beekeepers are very um, interesting people where they're tinkerers. They're fast thinkers. They they like to play a lot with their products and ingredients and, and how to even farm. You know, beekeepers are farmers, and so they're always thinking on... They're the like beekeepers. little worker bees. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that most beekeepers uh, definitely make a lot of meat at home. Uh, and so he just decided and thought, hey, it'd be really fun to do this, to actually make a business around making mead, uh, but sadly wasn't able to. And on a personal level for me, uh, you know, we've been making honey wine here in Beamsville for... Uh, just over 12 years now, we're going into our 13th year of, of commercial mead making now. Um, if we had 30 more years of, of the ability, or 30 more years time to actually make uh, alcohol like this out of honey legally in Ontario and to sell it, I, I, would, I would not have any idea of what kind of products we'd be making today. Hmm. You know, we're just now starting to open up the doors of new types of honey wines that we're uncovering and discovering, some through our own accidents, some through, some through the uh, natural universe and giving us a uh, lucky streak of uh, faults or problems or, hey, that pump failed and it caused this problem, but it resulted in this flavor. Hey, isn't that really funny and different? And that's now a really happy accident that resulted in something that's super unique and we never would have done before. You know, so we're really just starting to discover what is the full breadth and range of honey uh, in a fermented version. And that's what I think is at the heart of this, uh, one, the craft beer movement, um, and now at this 
hopefully a small renaissance or a resurgence, you could say, of, of honey wines in Ontario. So how is it processed? How do you make this? How is it different from then the wine? Is it similar to the winemaking process or different? Uh, it can be similar. Um, the basic act of fermentation is, is vir- virtually the same, meaning you have to have liquid sugar or sugar in suspension in a liquid that once a colony of yeast um, grows to 4.6 to the 10th power, so 4.6 billion yeast cells per colony, it can then metabolize sugar or eat the sugar to produce alcohol, right? So it's 4.6 to the 10th power to do that. Without that number, you're not making alcohol. So you always have to think that fermentation needs to occur to make any kind of alcohol, period. So that is never going to change. Now, to make the uh, to make a grape wine, for example, we're relying on that sugar to be born from the vineyard. Right. So the sun is being photosynthesized into the grapevines, uh, then into the grapes themselves. We harvest those grapes. We press them or chuck them into a tank, and then we can allow for natural fermentation or forced inoculation using commercial yeasts, up to our discretion based off of the flavor of the season and also the health of the grapes themselves. With honey wine, it's a bit different where we bring in the honey, we collect it, we have to let it wait for a couple weeks to settle. At that point, then we can start determining what kind of product we want to make, and that then allows us, or we have to then decide how much base sugar do we want to have or honey do we want to have in solution or dilution with water or other fruit sources or other types of flavoring agents. And then we can allow the fermentation to begin either naturally or, again, with a forced fermentation. You talked about yeast. What about beer? So beer right now is a very interesting topic because craft beer, um, I'm a huge craft local beer They must lover. be all over this. Um, they are and they aren't. Uh, I'll be really candid with you. Um, one of the key pillars of our company is we like to be candid and honest with people because we want to make approachable products. Um, so we really invite everybody to come to learn. And, you know, if you walk in wearing a beer shirt and a massive uh, beard or a plaid uh, T-shirt with us, you know, you fit right in. That's, <laughs> that's, that's our vibe at the farm here. We're really... We have mud on our boots, and we wear plaid, and we rock beards, and we, we carry around a beer in our back pocket. Like, that's, that's really us. Yeah. Um, so craft breweries, for example, have blown up in Ontario because of economies of scale and the price per unit or price per liter of production. Um, you know, grain is quite cheap, and a brewery license is very uh, broad, if you will. So mm-hmm. Their definition of what kind of malt they can use, which can be sourced from around the world, to ferment uh, or to be used as a fermentable source of sugar uh, is very broad in range. So they can buy very cheap malt or very expensive malt, but even the most expensive malt is, is light years cheaper compared to a pound of, a pound of honey, which right. only goes so far. Right. Uh, and then grapes are even further more expensive. So a lot of my brewery friends think we're absolutely nuts when we grow grapes all year as farmers, and then we have to then deal with them in our cellars for another two to three years mm. before those products go public. A um, little bit more than 35 days and bouncing it out or 40 days or whatever it is. Yeah, there you know, yeah, it's more like three to four years before we get any kind of yeah. return on it. It's pretty nuts when you think about it. Um, but beer, the beer guys have been able to ferment with honey or a portion of honey for sure. Um, and this is something that we're starting to dabble in with collaborations with some of our local craft brewing friends. Um, and it's just a fun avenue. And this is what I love about our local alcohol industry or community. Uh, I think the definitions of a beer community versus a wine community or a mead community, if you will, um, is starting to be really blurred. Hmm. We're all starting to play with fermentology, as I like to call it, is that we're all wanting to make exciting, different, new and unique products that are expressive of who we are as people, our time and place in our generation, uh, and of also the season. So if we have fresh cherries now, we can pick those cherries and ferment them into a beer and add honey to it with, with a friend down the road and a local brewery. So you can really quickly, as you see, make a beautiful flavor of the region and of you as people and put your own unique spin on it, and you've created something new. And 
and it gets you a little bit wobbly at the end of the day after a couple of them, and I don't think that's such a bad thing. Uh, what about cost? So is it a bit more expensive than wine? So uh, we, uh, for us, for our purposes, we actually try and make everything, like I said, pretty affordable and approachable. Um, so our honey wines vary in price based off of what is essentially the, the cost of production, and that cost comes down to what is the starting sugar source or how much of the starting sugar is of honey or how much honey that results in a certain amount of alcohol and resulting residual sugar. So that's the sugar that is remaining after fermentation that provides sugar on the palate and sweetness um, slash flavor of honey. So some range from uh, typically our honey wines, and these are straight honey wines, are $15 up to $20. Uh, then the addition of grape and honey is around $25. And then we have some reserve honey wines that are uh, barrel-aged for a minimum of four to five years, sometimes even longer. And those start at $40 a bottle for a half bottle. Then we have our very special products, which are, uh, for example, one's called Old Smoky. And this is a caramelized burnt honey, uh, honey wine, so it's called the Boucher that then goes into uh, a long a- area or a long time of, of aging, and then it goes into bourbon barrels to finish off its aging process. Wow. And that start, that's actually bottled at an alcoholic strength of 19 to 20%. I was just going to ask you, what is the alcohol yeah, content so of That these? one is kind of fun because it right. absorbs bourbon from the barrels. This is referred to as the devil's cut. Hmm. We, we steal or are uh, utilizing an old alcohol from that barrel, and it's, it's adding alcohol and flavor to our current honey wine that's in that barrel. Uh, and then we finish it with a small fortification using a local grain spirit from uh, from a local distillery, um, and that goes that ends at around 19%. Now those products tend to hover between. Uh, we've only done one version of that, but that one was $60 a bottle, mm. and we have some more in the works because people were very fond of those those kind of creations. So what does it taste like? And I guess it can taste like everything. It's like saying, what does yeah. a beer taste like? What does a wine yeah. taste? They're all different. They're they're all different. Um, uh, what I'll say, what I'll say is this: is that the driest honey wines um, that have anywhere from 15 to 20 grams residual sugar. So for a honey wine that's quite dry, um, it tastes of a little bit of like almost wildflower blossoms and a very very light touch of honey. And then you sometimes get these like spicy ginger notes and a little bit of like orange peel in it. And then the further down the sweetness spectrum that you go, so the sweeter the honey wine goes, those flavors all just magnify. So you get more honey. So would it be as sweet as an ice wine? Some can be. Yeah. Um, the sweetest one that we make, for example, is a apple cider and honey co-fermented product that we call Legacy. It's actually based off of a recipe that we found once my grandmother passed away. We found my grandfather's recipe in the bottom of her desk. Oh, man, so that's a great wrote, story. Yeah, he wrote that actually. He's a, He was an urban planner in Toronto, and so he typed out this recipe, and he used to make it at home, and he, he dated it March, 20th, uh, March 22nd, 1980. <laughs> we only found it three years ago. And so we brought it back to life and called it Legacy because this is his legacy and sure. this is what he wanted to do. Um, and that one, for example, has 15.4% alcohol. Uh, it's sitting at, it's sitting at uh, 122 grams of sugar, give or take. Um, and it's a very, very nice, sweet product. And it's not as sweet as a nice wine, uh, but it definitely is sweeter on the sweeter side of things. What, where did this come from? What's the history here? Uh, how do you mean the history? The history of mead. Yeah, um, so mead is, and I guess we should have started with this, and I apologize I didn't bring it up sooner, is uh, mead is actually what they claim to be the first form of alcoholic beverage that humans or mankind uh, ever stumbled upon. And I've heard a couple different stories about it, and the one that I think is most plausible because it it makes most uh, sense from a logical perspective for me is the fact that uh, it was found in the Iranian Delta, 
where nomadic tribes were traveling around the deserts and uh, those nomadic tribes, you know, they traveled together in groups of people and there was always a chieftain or a leader who would uh, lead, the, lead the pack, you could say, uh, and he was always the bearer of fresh drinking and healthy water. So he had a water jug always at his side. And whenever they stumbled upon a beehive, he would take some of that honey from that hive or that honeycomb and throw it into his, into his water jug, his water bladder, to keep it safe. Uh-huh. Combine water and honey, natural yeast that's hovering in the air and even on the honey itself, and combine it with the heat and the sun beating down on it, you have a perfect vessel for fermentation. Wow. So the, the stuff you take out, a lot different than what you put in. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, and, the, and the, the story goes on to say that he then would control the population of the nomadic tribe by gifting that honey to certain people in there to uh, coerce them into producing more people. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of interesting, the story. So it's an aphrodisiac. Precisely. <laughs> and that's where honey wine has really deep roots. Um, even the word honeymoon comes from comes from Celtic traditions of a, a newlywed couple would be gifted by their parents enough honey wine or mead to last them a full lunar cycle. Since, hence then, honeymoon. Wow. What a great yeah. story. If people want to find out more about you and mead, where do they go, William? Um, so the best place is to really go on, online. Um, we're very social online, so we love using Instagram, at, which is just at Rosewood Wine. Uh, and if not, go to the website, and that's uh, rosewoodwine.com, and you could find a lot of information about us, and uh, we are very active on there. The team does a great job of uh, being really uh, open and honest and transparent about what we do because one of our underwriting principles internally with the production team is that we don't want to do anything to our products and to what we make that we won't tell you what we do. Uh, I want you to know everything that goes on to these products. Government, province, LCBO, whatever, are they helping you with this? I mean, is it difficult to get this moving with it being the product that it is? Um, it is and it isn't. Uh, the LCBO has actually been pretty forthcoming. We were, in fact, the first honey wine uh, available in the LCBO through Vintages. Um, the chal- and we do still carry some of our products in the Vintages. Uh, uh, the challenge with the LCBO is the fact that they demand a lot of sales to be considered a generalist item. So to be found in every single store, you have to make quite a bit of product and sell through it very quickly. He needs to be talking to your beer buddies. Yes. <laughs> I so, hear you. Yeah, if you, don't, and if you don't sell through that amount or the predetermined target that they set, if you don't sell through that amount in that time period, then unfortunately you're blackballed. And uh, I like mm. dealing with the LCBO. They're a great set of people there, and they provide a great service. But it is challenging for products that are either new coming on, on the stream or if you just physically are bound by limitation of quantity, saying, hey, this is made in a certain style with mm. a certain amount of quality, and if it's not meeting of that time frame that they need it for, then you can't supply it. So it's a little bit challenging. And a bit of the same issues that breweries or wineries are having. Uh, William Roman has been with us, General Manager and Bee Master, Rosewood Estate Winery. If you want to find out what mead is, look them up and, uh, and enjoy. William, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. No Good problem. luck with all this. Thank you very much. You're most welcome. And please, uh, please come down. Don't be a stranger if you ever find yourself in our parts here. Okay? I'm going to search it out. Thank you so much. No problem. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.